my wife said, how many books are you going to buy? And I said, how many are there? I mean, I'll buy all of them. Like I want all of them. I want the biggest library I can have. And if you know Taleb from the Black Swan, Mm -hmm. Nicholas Nassim Taleb, when he went to see Berto Eco in Italy, who was a linguist and did semiotics, Echo told him when people come into his library, which was 30,000 volumes, people would say, Professor Echo, have you read all these books? And he would say, no, this is my anti-library. It's not important what books I've read. It's that I have access to the ones that I haven't read yet. And so the value is in the books that are there when you need them. So you can go and get the ideas that you need. So I put that to heart. So the big question is this, how do small business owners like us grow our business, grow our leadership and develop our teams in a way that allows us to get our products and services out of the world, yet still remain profitable? That is the question. And this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Bradley Hamner, and this is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Hey, before we get into today's episode, did you know that Club Capital is the largest accounting and advisory firm for insurance agency owners in the country, providing monthly accounting, CFO services, and tax preparation? Check them out at club.capital. Hey, everybody, it's Bradley, your host of the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Well, we begin 2021 with a bang. Today's guest is Anthony Inarino. Anthony is a highly respected international speaker. He's a best-selling author. He's an entrepreneur. He's a sales leader himself, specializing in complex business-to-business sales. And I can tell you, everything we talk about today absolutely applies to your business. Anthony's best known for his work at the Sales Blog, which helped him gain recognition as a top thought leader in sales strategy. His books, The Lost Art of Closing, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, and Eat Their Lunch are must-reads. I'm going to tell you, this is a podcast you're absolutely going to want to send to your entire team, especially to your sales team. In today's podcast, we touch on a variety of topics such as, what are the only three choices for you to make in your business? What are the four different levels of value? We actually end up playing a little game of sales mythbusters. How do we get better at asking questions? Really, what does it mean to be consultative? And the only two things you need to become a trusted advisor. We also touch on a topic I know is near and dear to all of your hearts, and that is, what do you really need to be looking for when recruiting sales team members? We discuss the most difficult thing facing those sales team members today, which is something you may not have thought about. And we also touch on the habits and rituals of highly successful team members. You're going to want to learn more about Anthony by visiting www.thesalesblog.com forward slash newsletter. Okay. Without further ado, the one and only Anthony in Reno. Wouldn't it be a great start to 2021 by having more leads in your book of business? Well, that's where our partners at Direct Clicks Inc. come in. Their team's dialed-in approach to running Google ads and online SEO campaigns maximize the quality and the volume of your leads, whether that's for inbound phone calls or even exclusive leads through your website. Direct Clicks Inc. works only with PNC insurance agency owners, so they have thousands of hours creating, A-B split testing, and improving online campaigns specifically for insurance. They also understand why each and every marketing dollar matters in providing true results, low paper clicks, transparency, and attention to detail. 
all of which is discussed in depth during your monthly review calls. Reach out to the Direct Clicks team at directclicksinc.com. That's directclicksinc.com and find out how they can make a difference in your approach to generating new business. Anthony, welcome to the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. I've been looking forward to this since Wednesday. Yeah, me too. Me too. So we always like to start with just background and origin story. And so for those that don't know you, can you just take a few minutes and tell your story and how you got to where you are today? The planet that my parents lived on was exploding and they put me in a spaceship and I ended up in Kansas. <laughs> no, not exactly. When you go origin story, you got to think of Superman or Spider-Man or something. Exactly. Like Wolverine. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm a, I would say I'm a street kid. So I was raised by a single mom, raised four kids by herself, who was raised by a single mom and raised five kids by herself. Dad left when I was seven. He was a guy that grew up without a dad. And I was poor. And I started working when I was 13 years old, washing dishes. Best thing that ever happened to me. Miss Milano would make me eat a lot. She would yeah. say, you're so skinny, you need to eat them more. And I'm like, I had eight chocolate mousse in the time that we've been here today, you know? And yeah. I was eating lasagna and I was working and I was getting money. At 13, I was working about 40 to 50 hours a week, cutting school as much as I could to go work. It worked out really, really well for me. At 15, I started making cold calls for the Muscular Dystrophy Association. Okay. I'm the only person in the class that I was in that got any bikeathons, but that was what I did when I was 15. Then I got a job at a skating rink. And then from 17 years old until I was 26, I played rock and roll. I fronted a hair metal band. So that was what I did until 25, 26 was about the end for me. But at 25, I had a brain surgery and I had a piece of my front right temporal lobe cut off because it was damaged from a group of arteries and veins. Wow. And I came back to Columbus and grew my family business from 3 million to 50 million. And then in 2009, so this is the 11th anniversary of my decision to publish every single day. I started writing every day on December 28th, 2009. I missed 13 days when I was in Tibet because I didn't think I was going to have Wi-Fi in Tibet. Turns out China Mobile, even at Mount Everest, is beautiful. I had better connectivity than when I'm in my hometown, Westerville. Like it, no kidding. It was better in China. So I started doing that. And then I wrote three books and started a career as a keynote speaker and facilitator and trainer and all those other things. So that was sort of the path that got me here. So I just learned more about you. I mean, I've listened to your content for years. 2015, maybe, was the first time that I was introduced to your work and You've had a big influence on my life, but I just learned a lot about you right then that I actually didn't know about. So where did the idea come that you were actually going to publish every day? Because you have been incredibly disciplined about that. Where did that come from? Well, it was like 2007, 2008. I was watching Seth Godin write every day. At the time, he did a, an interview with Tom Peters for Amex Small Business, and they were both talking about the power of a blog and how much it was doing for them. And I was thinking, like, I don't get it. And I bought the salesblog.com at that time because I couldn't get salesblog.com because Gittimer owned it, but he had never done anything with it. Yeah. Eventually, at some point, he sent me a note saying, you know that I have salesblog.com, don't you? And I'm like, no, I have no idea about that. And uh, he's a funny character. We had a number of exchanges and I told him what I thought and he told me what he thought. We're now really good friends, but... 
I was watching these guys and I thought, I need to do this because I have something to share yeah. and I have the ability to help people and I could help more people if I did this. So December 28, 2009, I sat down with my wife and told her I was going to start publishing every day and I was going to get up at five o'clock in the morning instead of 6.15 and I was going to spend that first hour writing in December 28th, because I never make New Year's resolutions. That's what you do if you're really not serious about keeping a commitment. Right? I agree with that. I yeah, that. Like I totally agree. 90% of them are dropped in four days. So like, there's no reason to pick that day. That day is, it's tainted. Like, it's poison. Stay away from that one. Start a couple days earlier, or a couple days later, or something else. And then I started writing. And other than Tibet, where I didn't think I was going to be able to publish, just because it's you're out there. I mean, you're yeah. up... 15,000 feet in Lhasa. And it was wonderful, but I could have published if I would have known that it was going to be that easy. Other than that, I've written every day. will be 11 years in December 28th. And every good thing that's happened to me has come from that. I'll tell you what, myself and many people are thankful that you decided to do that because you've impacted a lot of lives from that one decision. And from that tipping point in your life to do that has really had a, you know, what do they call that? The butterfly effect, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into, I've got a number of questions and I was really excited about this interview because I just think our audience is going to get a tremendous amount from you. So let's start here. So everyone listening to this, you and I talked about this in our pre-podcast call on Wednesday. Everybody listening to this is both B2C and B2B, right? So how do we break out of the price game and truly play in the game of value? I mean, if you just turn on the TV, you see all the insurance companies out there always talking about 15 minutes and say 15% and all this. Everything is about price, price, price. How do we as insurance agency owners break out of that? Well, here's what I would tell you. There's basically three choices you can make as a business. And there's three strategies. You have to pick one. And this isn't my work. This is from Michael Treacy and Fred Wersama in a book called The Discipline of Market Leaders. And what the discipline of market leaders will teach you in 180 pages, I can teach you in a minute and a half right now. You're going to have either the lowest price. That's going to be how you compete. I'm going to have a lower price for you. Or you have the very best product. Very hard to do in your business. Like mine. Like I came out of temporary staffing. Very hard to say. Like I have all the good people. They have all the bad people. Yeah. Right. You know, like I have good coverage. They have bad coverage. No, it's not true. Like we have the same coverage. Sure. And then the third choice you can make is called a customer intimacy model. And a customer intimacy model means I'm not going to have the lowest price and I might not even have the best product, but the combination of things that I'm going to do are going to get you more value than anything else. So I'm going to know your business in a customer intimacy model. In a customer intimacy model, I'm going to understand your business so well that I can make very good recommendations, better recommendations than somebody who calls flow and does something like that, where that's a different kind of thing, right? It's a different kind of model. What you have to do when your customer intimacy model is actually work on the customer intimacy part. So I need to know you. I need to know your business. And I think I said this to you on Wednesday. Twice a year, I hear from our insurance company. Mm-hmm. Twice a year. So once is like everything good. Talk to you at renewal time. That is not an intimacy model. That's very much like I'm married for 25 years and I call the florist and I'm like, send my wife a dozen roses on her birthday and our anniversary. How much credit do I get for that from my wife? Zero. She would say, stop wasting your money. Like you didn't do that. It's automated. So it matters that you care and it matters that you lead with insight. So I'm going to tell you the first part of that is pick a lane. Like if you want to be the low price provider, then that's what you have to do all the time. 
And if you have some sort of special way to have a product that's better than anyone else's, and that's your model, you have to do it all the time. This is the Apple 12. And why is it the 12? Because I didn't make a 13 yet. And I'll get the 13 too, because it's the best product. Okay. So that's a model that's hard to operate in in a service type business. Mm -hmm. The model that most of you have chosen is customer intimacy, Mm -hmm. which means I'm responsible for creating more value for you than anyone else. That's what it is. I know you better. I understand the solution better. I can tailor it for you better. I can take better care of you. I can help you avoid unnecessary risks. I can tell you where the market's going and what you should be doing about it. You have to do that. So I'll give you one other framework. And this is my framework. There's four levels of value. The first level of value is the product. And everybody has a good product. So that's a hard one to win on. So when you come in and say, I'd like to talk to you about your liability insurance, you've already said I'm a commodity. You basically just said, I confess I'm a commodity. I don't have anything interesting to offer you. So you make it hard that way. The second level of value is what I would call support, service, experience, something like that. So that there's some sort of level of value that you create by making sure people have a good experience with you. There's not that much for you to do for that to happen. Like you're not Disney. Disney's an experience. Like there's a high level two. Starbucks is a high level two. Yep. Level three is, can you make sure that if something happens, I have a way to pay for it? That's level three. That's the tangible result of insurance. So the fourth level is strategic. So why are people buying this anyway? I want to avoid certain risks. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that I'm covered for these particular things. I want something different. I want the certainty that I'm covered. I want the certainty that if anything happens, my business is okay. I want to make sure that I'm addressing all of the appropriate threats to be addressed. Like we don't do that. So I have businesses and they're like, okay, 2 million, 4 million, umbrella, boom, done. That's it. Like they have no idea. Like, do I need cyber liability right now? I got clients who send me things. Those things are protected IP. Do I need cyber? No one's ever mentioned cyber to me. I know I need cyber. I'm getting cyber. Like I know that. But what you have to do is start from the fourth level of value. So what is it that you're really trying to do for them? Are you just trying to sell them a policy? If you're just trying to sell them a policy, you're a commodity. Anybody can sell them a policy. That's not hard to do. They could go online right now and just buy a policy. Yeah, for sure. They won't even have to interact with you at all. Like yeah. you, can, you can do that now. And it's going more that way, more and more and more every day. Well, see, that's the advantage for you. So yeah. the advantage is the more transactional a business becomes, the easier it is to differentiate yourself from the transactional. Absolutely. So if you said, I'll just pitch you, okay? Mm-hmm. Bradley, if it's okay with you, can I explain how my model works? And it's a little bit different than any model you've had with anybody else at insurance. Would it be okay if I share that with you? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to set this up by telling you that I'm different. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to do an exhaustive look at your business so we can make sure that we identify all of the potential threats for you. Some of them that you might not have insurance for right now, but some that we might make some recommendations because if you have a breach, it ends up costing you $3 million if you have a cyber breach and you lose people's data. So it's $3 million minimum getting in. You're a publicly traded company Normally, your stock will drop by 20% and you'll lose 30% of those customers who will never come back. Yeah. So I want to make sure that we look at that and that you're not over-insured, but that you have the right thing there. After we are done with that, I'm going to come back and I'm going to show you some choices. I'm going to show you a few ways that we might look at this. So there's some ways where you might want to put a little bit more on like an umbrella if we think that there's some exposure that we haven't recognized. 
and otherwise we'll dial these numbers in and make sure that you have exactly what you need to cover the risk because we look at them and I'll share with you why we're making these choices. No one's ever done that for me, Bradley, by the way. No one's ever done that for me. So this has never happened. So what I'm telling you is what I recognize as a gap. I would close it in four seconds if I was in your industry. I would close this. And then here's what we're going to do. The way that our business works is there's not going to be anything that happens in the first quarter when we're working together. Nothing is going to happen. If it does, you're covered. You don't have to worry about that. But we are going to sit down and we're going to review the policy with you. And I'm going to let you know where we are. And then we'll let you know what's going on in the industry. So if there are any changes, if there's any better deal, I'll help make you think about what that's going to look like for you. And if there's something else that shows up as something that's going to be important for you, like right now, Congress today has decided to do a coronavirus relief package. And Mitch McConnell dropped his requirement that there will be no business liability around coronavirus. So we are probably going to want to think about that together. Like I could call you about this. I could watch CNBC in the morning and call you about three things because I'm paying attention. I'm paying attention to what's going on in the world. After that, we'll have a quarterly meeting where I'll sit down with you. Even if there's nothing for us to talk about, I'll at least let you know what's going on. You tell me what's going on in the business so that we're never behind any decisions that you might make. So you, you want to pick up a new piece of property. You're going to open in another market. We'll be on top of that ahead of time. You can always call, but I'm going to set this up. So I'm going to try to set up the customer intimacy model right from the beginning. Like We're going to talk. You're going to know me. I'm going to sit in your office. We're going to have calls together. And I would treat it like it was not transactional. Yeah, sure. But your industry treats it like it is transactional. Yeah, I think so many people have, not insurance agency owners, but everybody else, experiences their insurance very similar to the way that you experience it. And so therefore... The bar is set so low is basically what you're saying. The bar is set so low that then there's such an opportunity for agency owners and their teams to step into something I was going to ask you about and what you just really role played for us is the consultative role. So you want to talk about just really how important it is to be known as, well, consultative. And then eventually I was going to get into risk advisors thrown around in our industry quite a bit. And you talk about being a trusted advisor. Can you talk about consultative and trusted advisor, those two things? So consultative means something specific. In a lot of people think that consultative means I don't use any high pressure. I ask really good questions. Like That's the extent of what they think consultative means. That's not what consultative actually means. Those things are still true, but that's not what it means. What it means is I'm going to give you advice about how to run your business. That's what consultative means. I'm going to tell you how to run your business. Mm. So that means I need to know something that you don't know. I need to know something that you don't know. Because if you already know what I know, then you have no need for me. Like I already know what I know. So here's what I know. I need a $5 million umbrella. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I've always had a $5 million umbrella. (laughs) Well, how do you know that 5 million is right? I've always had five. I mean, that's the extent of the customer's knowledge. They don't know why they have a five. Like, do you need a 10? I don't know. Do I? Like, I don't know. How would I know? I don't know anything about insurance. Uh, sure. You're the expert. So you're supposed to know these things. So what makes you consultative is the ability to give somebody good advice about their business, which means you need to know more than they know. And you need to teach them how to think about their business. That's your job. So most insurance agencies, they want to do discovery where they ask you a few questions and then they give you the $5 million umbrella. You want to have them ask you questions because you're asking them some questions that cause them to say, I don't know about that. 
Okay, good. What they don't know, I'll fill that gap for you, right? I'm supposed to fill that gap. I don't know the answer to that. Why do we have five? Yeah. I might look and go, you could easily do four. You Four would be more than enough for you. And you could have people who are underinsured because an insurance agent wanted to make it easy. And I don't want to make it a price issue. You can have people overinsured because somebody took advantage of somebody and overinsured them uh, more than what they want or what they need rather. So I think consultative is the bar. Like you have to teach. If I don't have something to say about coronavirus, if I don't have something to say about the liability around that, if I don't have something to say about cyber right now, our government was just attacked. They got into the defense department. They got into everything. If they can get broken into, you can get broken into. Like, believe me. Yeah. So they've got all kinds of safeguards in place that you don't have. So that's the first thing. And what makes you a trusted advisor is two things, trust and advice. If I never see you, where's the trust? Like, I don't know you. You don't know me. We've never had a meal together. We've never had coffee. You've never spent more than 30 minutes in my office. Yeah. Like, I don't know you. You don't know me. You've not had a good diagnosis of my business. You're going to ask about payroll. You're going to ask if I need E&O and some things like that. But other than that, you're not doing a consultative job. Yeah. A consultative job would be, I'm going to ask you questions that cause you to go like, I don't know about that. What should I be thinking about that? I need to ask you a question you don't know the answer to. Are you an agency owner looking to grow your revenue and increase your bottom line? Club Capital is here to help. Built for agents by agents, so we know your struggles. With accounting, payroll, and HR solutions, tax services, analytics, and more, let's get you on the path to serious success. Using data-driven insights, you'll grow your business based on revenue and expense comparisons alongside your top-performing peers. With over $100 million in tracked annual revenue and $70 million in tracked annual expenses, we have the data to help you make better informed decisions for your agency. Let's make your back office less of a hassle and more of the strategic generator that powers the growth to take your agency and your leadership to the next level. Visit club.capital today to book your complimentary, no obligation demo. Club Capital, way more than a CPA firm. So that's a perfect segue into the one of the most important questions I wanted to ask you today. So you talk a lot about mindset and skill set, and I just absolutely love that. Talk about the mindset and skill set that we need to have, and especially teaching and coaching to our team members about getting better at asking those questions. Just the mindset around question asking and skill sets in sales. Because listen, let's be real. If you're a salesperson, the idea is, which is a wrong axiom, that you're going to be the one talking all the time, right? So talk about mindset and skill set around asking questions. Well, I mean, in the first book I wrote, the first half of the book is mindset. It's discipline, it's optimism, it's competitiveness, it's resourcefulness, all of those things. The mindset for you should be, I'm trying to create value for these people. I'm trying to create value for these people. So how do I create differentiated value for them? Well, I do that by teaching them. And some of the ways that I teach people is by asking them a question that I know they don't know the answer to. Because what I'm really trying to teach them first is that you don't know the answer to this. And we need to figure out what the right answer is for you. So we need to have this conversation. So when I was doing the role play and I was saying something like, do you have cyber crime and is it $10 million policy? Like, do I need 10 million? Like, what would I need? I don't know we have a cyber crime, but what would I need there? Okay, good. Now we're having a conversation. So, well, let's talk about what your risks are. And I would do a true risk analysis. I would be a risk advisor because I would know more about the risk than you do because I would be paying attention. 
I would even do more than that. So I would just tell you on my desktop, which you can't see because we're on Zoom right now, and I won't share my desktop with you. I've got JP Morgan Chase's 2019 annual report there because I'm looking at some financial companies as clients. And I'm going to read the risk assessment for JP Morgan Chase. And I'm going to read the one for Goldman Sachs. And I'm going to read one for Citigroup. And I'm going to read one for Blackstone. And then I'll have a very good understanding of how financial institutions think about their risk because I want to know what would cause them to change. Like, how's their world going to change? Well, they're responsible for printing that in their annual report. So investors have a good idea of any risks that they're taking and what they're concerned about. I don't have to work very hard to do this. They already wrote it all down. Like it's already written down. Like it's not hard to do. So you can look at an industry vertical and see what people and big companies think their risks are. That's what the risks are in little companies too. Like the things that can happen to a big company can happen to a small company. That's very true. And if I was sitting down, I would have some insights and I would say, the largest financial institutions are concerned about these things. Here's what the trend lines look like. And here's what the risks look like. Here's some of the reasons that you might want to change and do something different than what you're doing now. But that would make me consultative. Like I'm going to know more than you do because you didn't want to read JP Morgan Chase's annual report. Now, mm-hmm. I'm nerdy enough that I actually like reading the chairman's letter. It's always interesting to me how they frame things up because they're trying to get you to buy stock. I mean, that's yeah. what the annual report's about. Sure. But they don't avoid telling you the bad news too. Like we wrote down $80 billion because people are going to default on their mortgages and their cars because they ain't got no jobs because their cities are shut down. So that's in there. Like you're going to see those things. It makes you conversant. You're conversant. So you can't be consultative without knowing things. So what do you know? You're like, I know they need a $5 million umbrella. (laughs) That's not enough. You have to know more than that. You have to understand enough about their business to be conversant. It's not that hard to do, but you do have to do the work. You have to do the work. You have to do the work. Yeah. One of my favorite shows years ago, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago was Mythbusters. Did you ever watch Mythbusters? I watched maybe an hour of TV a week, so I didn't watch it. I know the show, though. I've seen it. My son had really has recently gotten into it. He found it and he kind of likes science projects. He's in fourth grade. And so he's into those kind of things. And so he's been watching a lot of those shows on YouTube. So anyway, I'd like to play a little sales myth busters with you. Does that sound good? Sure. sure. All right. Here's one. ABC, ABC, baby, always be closing, always be closing. Tell us why that that is absolute garbage. Okay. So I agree with always be closing, but not the way that you just said it. (laughs) So the part where it's like, uh, Bradley, you know, you're a handsome fella and uh, I'd like to marry you. That's a little fast for me. You know, like, hang on. Uh, We just sat down to have coffee. Why are we going so fast? Like, I would tell you in the law start of closing, I have 10 commitments. B2B and B2C people have used this to good effect in either case. But first, we're going to explore. We're going to have a conversation about change. Then we're going to talk about whether it makes sense to take care of that cybercrime policy that you don't have. And then we're going to talk about what is the right solution going to look like? Well, it might look like this. It might look like that. Let's talk about these things and dial it in together. And then if there's more people involved in it, if it's a consensus, then we're going to talk to them. And I'm going to share with you what the investment will look like. It's going to be nine to $10,000 for your business or some number like that, right? We're going to reinsure it with Zurich. And I'll tell you why as we go through this process. I'm going to explain this to you. I'm going to ask you if it works for you and if we can review it. And then I'm going to ask you if you have any concerns. And then the closing part's the easiest part of all, because we've had all the conversations. 
all I have to say is, Bradley, if you don't have any other concerns, can I put this policy in place for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it. Like, that's the easiest one. The hardest part is getting a meeting. The hardest part is the first commitment. That's true. Will you meet with me? After you get the meeting, everything else after that is much easier than that one, in my opinion. All right. So I'll come back to that point because I actually did have that down because I wanted to talk. Always, always get the next commitment. Mm -hmm. Whatever the next commitment is, always get the next commitment. Don't try to rush through to the end. All right. Mythbusters number two, sales mythbusters number two. Ask the easy questions, getting them in the habit of saying yes, so that whenever you ask for the sale, that they're just naturally going to say yes to that. Oh, my goodness. So this is an insurance thing. So, uh, Bradley, do you love your wife? Yes. Do you love your children? Yes. If anything happened to you, would you want your children to go to college? Yes. Would you want your wife to be able to keep the house and have the kind of living that she's had while you were a provider? Yes. Yes. Please sign this so that you and I can both sleep tonight knowing that you're taken care of. How did that feel? (laughs) Manipulative. (laughs) Of course. I was asking you tie down questions because I could get you to say yes. But the truth of the matter is there are still laws on the books that allow me to rescind that contract within three days. Because after Mm -hmm. you do that to me, I'm like, that rap bastard. I'm going to cancel that contract. He took advantage of me. Those are laws on the books because of that. Like that's a horrible way to sell. That's a horrible way to sell. And anybody who teaches that, run from them. Like run. No. Listen, I've been to conferences. I've been to meetings. I've been to trainings where that that was the big thing that they did is get people's giving this commitment and of saying yes. I mean, I've actually heard this in front of in front of a lot of people, unfortunately, and which is why I'm so glad that you were able to. But that's what you do if you're not good at selling. Yeah. I mean, I could easily say, Bradley, if you didn't have this coverage that we're talking about for your family, what would happen? Mm. I know you don't have the money and I know you haven't set aside the money, but even if we can't get you the insurance policy you need, can I help you get something so that you have some sort of a bridge until you get there? Like, why do I have to pressure you when I could just talk to you like I care about you? Sure. Why, Why couldn't I do it that way? Sure. You mentioned this earlier, or well, I think we actually talked about it on Wednesday. You have a really strong staffing background, so I'm actually really excited for you to talk about this. The single biggest pain point that our listeners deal with is their team and their people. Mm-hmm. Why is it so hard for us to find good sales people? So one thing is, uh, well, let me go through a kind of a list here for you. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. number one, the first thing you look for is to see if they have insurance experience. And the reason that you do that is because you don't want to work hard developing your people. That's why so you true. do it. That is yeah. so true. So you're like, I'm just going to hire somebody that already knows how to do this. Well, why are they looking for work? It's a good question. So if they were good and they were successful, the last place that they had would never let them go Like because you're good and successful. So you got to start thinking about what you do. The second thing is if you think salespeople are good because they had a sales title in the past, you're wrong. So when you think about the training you give your people and you go, well, we don't give our people any training. Mm. That's where they came from too. They came from a place where there was no training and there was no development. I have a competency model that maybe has 40 or 50 criteria on it. There's a competency model. What are the odds that any insurance agent that walks in and applies for a job has got every one of those competencies? None, right? No one's got a competency. So no one ever spends time developing people. They're like, well, there's no good people available. There's tons of good people available. Because what I want is over your right shoulder, second book from the end, 
only sales guide you ever need that looks like it or it's john maxwell oh yeah no 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 here, oh there's I it, right. yeah. i got i got it right here see how close they look yeah okay so and the only sales guide if you're disciplined you have a good attitude you're other oriented you're actually trying to help other people you're competitive you're resourceful you take initiative you've got good communication skills you're proactive i can teach you everything else Mm-hmm. I can teach you everything else. I don't need you to be more than that. I would look for character traits and then develop a great training program. That's better than saying there's no good salespeople. Well, there's a couple things you can do. There's only really two choices. You can either buy them or you can build them. So you're either going to buy them and you're going to say, I'm going to overpay because I, I need this right now, or you're going to build them yourself. And the good part about building them yourself is that they don't show up with a bunch of bad habits and bad beliefs about the industry, and you can actually turn them into something good. I'm going to tell you, whoever's listening to this podcast needed to hear that right there. Needed to hear that. You've got to develop your people. You've got to have a training program. You're either going to buy the quality salespeople you want, or you're going to build them. I love that. One or the other. Most companies that really get this do both. Like when somebody comes on the market, they know them already. And they'll pick them up and then they'll also build their own. Well, you and I had a great conversation about college football the other day. And I Here mean, we go. You, see, you see this, right? We're, I mean, we're you going see off this. the rails right now. The rest we're of the gonna, I know we're about to go football. off the rails. I know. But Saban does an incredible job of finding five stars, but he doesn't just then say, okay, well, we got it. I mean, he develops them. And same thing as Coach Day is doing at Ohio State. Yeah. Urban Meyer did that at Ohio State. I mean, they get the best of the best, right? Now, I could even argue in here that they buy them too, but we won't go there. At Alabama, they do. Oh, yeah. For sure. So here's what my uh, riff on this SEC is, is that all those kids stay through their senior year because they can't take the pay cut to go to the NFL. Like, they're just waiting it out. <laughs> oh, man. That's good. That's good. Is that a Big Ten joke? Yeah, it has to be, right? Yeah. Okay. Hey, but I agree with you with Alabama. But the point is still important that they're getting the best talent and then they've got the development program in their schools, and we need to be able to have the same thing in our. Yeah, agency. and this is this is sort of the riff on Jim Harbaugh is that he doesn't do the same kind of development that other college programs yeah. do, and yeah. so his kids don't love him; they love Saban. Yeah, not just in a COVID year, but before COVID. So if we go to January, what is one of the biggest challenges that sales reps are facing today? And I know one of them's got to be getting people's time, getting them for the appointment. So I wanted to go back to that. So can you just talk about some of the challenges facing sales reps today, kind of pre-COVID, and then you can even mention about where we are today right now? I would tell you, I think the hardest commitment to gain right now is the commitment to time. I think that's one of them for sure. I think in your industry, if you don't work at this, you're starting with what I call a relevant problem. Like you're not relevant. So it's very hard to be relevant if you're transactional. And if you're just going to sell a policy and then that's the end of our relationship for the next 12 months, it's going to be very, very hard for you. So you need to fix the relevance problem. And the relevance problem is what do you know that's worth me giving you my time for? Mm -hmm. And if you can't trade enough value for that time, your prospect's right to say no. They're right to say no, because you didn't offer me anything that's going to put me in a better position at the end of that meeting than I am right now. And you should think about I'm going to say this in a particular way. Would they pay for that meeting? Was the meeting so valuable to them that they would pay you? If you go, well, it wasn't valuable enough that they should pay me for it. Well, then so why should mindset, they buy from right? me? I mean, why should they to, buy from me? Because that's you're a total asking, mindset thing. Total mindset. 
Like I have to deliver so much value to you that you're like, this is my guy. Like, that's it. This is my girl. Like, that's it. Like, I don't have anybody else. This is the person I'm going to be working with because they spent time. They understand my business. They're proactive. They're helpful. Now, listen, I know this. So I'm going to say this in a harsh way and I apologize. Most of the people that will listen to this won't do anything. Yeah, that's true. Three people will. They'll go, you know what? Like, I heard him just do that riff. I can walk in and tell them we're going to have a quarterly meeting. Mm-hmm. I can talk to them about cyber and tell them what my riff is on COVID. I can do those things. This isn't magic. There's nothing unique about this. We do it in tons of other industries. I did it in staffing, which is easily as commoditized as insurance. It's mm-hmm. easily as commoditized. Mm-hmm. I got all the good people. They got all the bad people. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. How do you do that? Like that doesn't work, right? Sure. Everybody knows about it. But yet I beat the largest staffing companies on earth because of salesmanship. Salesmanship. That's the part you have to get. And you are aggressive enough to actually read a book. Most people won't do that, even in their chosen field. Those people just, I guess they're looking for the, what was that? Staples. They're looking for the easy button. Right. They just want it easy. And the best things in life truly don't come easy. You have to do the work. That is the easy part, right? The easy part's just doing the work. Yeah, right. That's the easy way. The hard way is trying to find a way not to do the work. That'll take you years and you'll never find it anyway. That's a good point. So one unique question I had for you today was there are some models where agents will have a hybrid system to where effectively a team member will do both sales and service. But for the most part, there's a sales side of the business and a service side of the business. So a lot of agents are looking for what would basically be considered like a pivot and close customer service team member, somebody that is not sales, but they can pivot and find an opportunity, find a gap in coverage and be able to pivot. But Honestly, agents get a lot of pushback from their service team. They say, hey, I'm not in sales. Can you just speak to that about how agents can talk to those particular team members to get them to understand their value and not being salesmen? Yeah, I mean, the value in a non-salesperson is that person can start a conversation to say, you know, I was looking at your policy and I was looking at some other people in the same industry and you have a gap that we probably should have found sooner. And I'm going to ask Bradley to come out and have a conversation with you because I don't want this to be open for you guys, whether you do it or not. We think it probably all makes sense. I mean, I don't have to be super salesy. I'm your... That's a good thing about an operational person. Yeah. It doesn't feel like they're selling. When you show up though, it does. So mm-hmm. one of the things that I did in staffing is I would take operations people on a sales call and I would say, I brought the branch manager here. If you want to ask him any questions and they'd go, how do you guys handle this? And the branch manager go, well, this is what we do in that case. And they're like, well, what if you do this? Okay, yeah, this is what we do in that case. And they're like, oh, I love Kelly. She's great. Like, a, she's a better salesperson just because she's telling them the answers. Yeah. Uh, you have to find some way to get them engaged. I do think that they're responsible for helping you grow the account if it needs to be grown. Hmm. I think they should. But you can't expect them to be a salesperson if they're not one because most people don't want to be a salesperson, but they don't know why they don't want to be a salesperson. They think that there's a stereotype. Like I have to be smarmy, pushy, self-oriented, money grubbing. They think those things are, that's not what we do in sales. Yeah. You ever see those things on Facebook where it's like six pictures and it's like what my mom thinks I do. They think you're Glengarry Glenn Ross. You know, that's like, right. Yes. That's not what we do. We sit down and we have nice conversations with nice people. Like there's nothing like that going on. There's no pressure. That's all gone. But they think that like, well, if I was a salesperson, I'd have to be something that I'm not. And I'm like, well, here's what I know about you. When you were four, you were an amazing salesperson. 
Like you were an unbelievable salesperson. You were a killer negotiator. You'd be like, uh, so dad, if you give me the ice cream, I'll go right to bed tonight. And, yes. And you start negotiating and selling, right? And then for some reason, you get around teenagers and everybody starts to conform and you gave up that part of you. But yeah, I got one of my twin daughters, the youngest one. I got a short twin and a tall twin, very different girls. But the short twin will ask and ask and ask and ask. She's never lost it. She's persistent. She gets what she wants yeah. because she wants what she wants and she's not afraid to keep asking for it. So she's a different animal, but she didn't get rid of that. You don't have to get rid of that. Like you can keep that. You could yeah. also, you know, I had to teach her like, you don't need to use a hammer all the time. You can be smooth. You can be charming. And I probably shouldn't have taught her that because now she's super charming and she's even more dangerous. That has backfired on you. That's a yes, second consequence. I got it wrong. And little girls, I'm telling my daughter. She's six right now. And so I completely agree. She gets whatever she wants. She's she a good just, salesperson. She's a and, great and salesperson. You're an easy close too, by oh, the way. I'm a super easy close. I'm a pushover. There's no doubt. All <laughs> right. Last question before we get into E9. I've heard you talk about rituals and habits on some other podcasts and other things. So rituals and habits of highly effective salespeople. Talk to us about some of those things. I know you've talked before about time blocking. specifically. Time blocking for sure. I mean, number one, 90 minutes on the clock, first thing in the morning, making prospecting calls. Change your whole life. You'll have more deals than you've ever had just with that thing alone. Following up, reading about the verticals that your clients are in, becoming an expert, all of those habits. I mean, I had somebody ask me this last week, do you have a habit of reading? Do you do personal development as part of your weekly plan? And I'm like, I read for 90 minutes every night because I'm so dumb. I'm so ignorant. I know almost nothing. And there's so many things to know. Like you've got a nice little bookshelf there. I got a couple thousand books right behind me over here. And then yeah. I've got new cases going up in my office because I'm constantly trying to learn so I can understand how things work. And you have to spend time doing that. Look, if you're in sales and you don't read sales books, you're not going to get better. Like sales books won't make you better unless you're selling. But if you're yeah. selling and you read sales books, they'll make you better. Like they'll give you lots of different ideas. And not, I mean, pick mine, pick Jeb Blunt, pick Mike Weinberg. I mean, I got any number of friends whose books I could recommend to you, all worth reading and all will give you some new strategies and tactics that could improve your results. Well, there are a lot of sales books out there. Everybody you just mentioned there, love Jeb Blunt's work, Weinberg's work. I know you guys have done a lot of work together, but I think your books may have been the first books that I actually read on sales. Truly read. I mean, I did not start reading. This has come up on the podcast before. I did not start reading in earnest. So I started my first business in 2010. I think it was 2015 when I first, 2015, 2016, when I first started to read. And that's probably one of my only regrets is I wish I would have started reading earlier in my business career. Because yeah. I think everything that's happened since that point has become because I began to make the investments in my personal development. And it's so inexpensive. I mean, to buy a book for 25, 30 bucks, it's such an incredible $25 in six hours Yeah, for a lifetime of someone else's learning. You don't have to go to college. You don't have to get an MBA. You can go pick it up at, at Barnes and Noble or Amazon. And basically for six hours of your time, right, you can get like my competency models in the only sales guide. You can get the competency model on what you're looking for in a salesperson. That book will take you four and a half, five hours to read total. 
And how long did it take you to put that book together, start and finish? Well, I wrote it in 2016 and I started selling when I was 15 years old. So that's like a lot of years of experience. It's a lot of years. Yeah, yeah. it's a lot of years. So, because yeah. you're not getting the time it took me to write the book. It's yeah. the time to get the, it was maybe 2008 when a guy told me my people are terrible at prospecting and I watched them prospect and they were really good. And I said, they're not uh, bad at prospecting. They don't need help. They need discipline. <laughs> they need to actually do the work. They need goals and they need accountability. So you have the wrong assessment. Mm. And that's when I realized like not everybody's disciplined. Mm. Not everybody's disciplined. Most people are undisciplined, especially about their work, especially yeah. about prospecting. But I wouldn't have known that except for I encountered it. So all of the things on a competency model for me are things I thought, well, this person fails not because they're not smart, but because they have learned helplessness. They, they're not resourceful. They don't try to figure it out on their own. They're a dependent. And so I started to see all those things and that stuff made it into there. But like any book that you could pull off of that shelf there has more wisdom in it just because somebody thought long enough and hard enough about some subject to write it all down for you. Yeah. Like the reason I buy books, my wife said, how many books are you going to buy? And I said, how many are there? I mean, I'll buy all of them. Like I want all of them. I want the biggest library I can have. And if you know Taleb from the Black Swan, mm -hmm. Nicholas Nassim Taleb, when he went to see Berto Eco in Italy, who was a linguist and did semiotics, Eco told him when people come into his library, which was 30,000 volumes, people would say, Professor Eco, have you read all these books? And he would say, no, this is my anti-library. It's not important what books I've read. It's that I have access to the ones that I haven't read yet. And so the value is in the books that are there when you need them. So you can go and get the ideas that you need. So oh, I took that to heart. Yeah. I love that. I love that. That is really, really good. Well, I don't know who said this, but I've heard it before. Somebody said the best teacher is experience, but it doesn't have to be your experience. Yeah, right. You know, so. All right. You ready for the world famous E9 rapid fire? Let's go. What is the book that you would recommend the most to others? Well, see, I don't generally recommend a book to everybody. So mm -hmm. I generally try to pick a book for a person. Okay. So an individual do, person. So let's do this. Let's do two books. Let's do the book that you would recommend the most to sales managers, specifically people who are leading other sales team members. And then number two, the sales team members in our offices, what's the book that you would recommend the most to them? I'll give you some interesting choices here. I won't give you something that's easy. There's a book by a guy named George Leonard called Mastery. Leonard became an Aikido expert in his late 50s. And it's about not dabbling. So that's what I would give to a salesperson. Like Mastery, that book is worth reading because it will change your life and you'll recognize like I'm on a plateau and I need to start doing the work to break out of the plateau. And then I'm gonna be on another plateau. It just teaches you not to be a dabbler. Don't okay. dabble, go all in, like that's it. Now for sales managers, I'll give you two. I'll give you Seven Habits of Highly Effective People mm -hmm. by Stephen Covey. The second one I will give you is uh, The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. Mm. Like that one will straighten you out in a whole bunch of ways. If you are more of a biography reader, and this will probably appeal more to men than women, is Steal My Soldier's Heart by Colonel David Hackworth. And Hackworth took over the worst group in Vietnam and turned them around and made them an unbelievable fighting force. 
even though they had a bounty on his head when he came over to take over. Like they literally were going to kill him. They had a bounty on the colonel and the colonel ended up being unbelievable. It's an amazing book. I could be wrong, but do you know Jocko? Well, I don't know Jocko. I think I've heard him recommend that book on his podcast before. At least I've heard him say he Hackworth. Pro- probably a, a Hackworth. I think he recommends About Face, which is a leadership book. Yes. yes. Um, I wonder if people ask him if he knows me, because I get it like all the time. Like you and Jocko are always talking about self-discipline and you've mm-hmm. read the same books and I haven't read the same books. They think yeah. that, but I haven't. Like Jocko reads the darkest stuff. He does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's like he really does. dark, but he's, really you know, he's a Navy SEAL. So yeah, he's been in dark places. Yeah, that's very true. Question two, where did do good work come from? Here's what I was trying to say. Not only does the quality of your work have to be good, but it actually has to do good work. You have to make a difference while you're here. So for some reason, at some point, that just came to be one thing for me that meant both of them together. And you might not know that unless I tell you that, but that was me just pushing that together, both ideas into one statement, like make the quality good, like care about your work, but then make it meaningful for other people because you're here for a short time. Do something that's worthwhile for other humans. What is your favorite Christmas memory as a child? So I grew up really, really poor. Here's what I could tell you. My mom was really, really poor and I never went without anything. Like, I mean, I went without a lot of things, but I think if I had to go back and think about that, there was this racetrack that came out when I was like maybe nine years old or something like that. And they were like, you had the remotes on them and they were on a track. Yeah. I can't remember what the name of it was, but I never expected to get that. And I don't know what it, it must have cost, like $30 or something like that. Yeah. But that was when you have five people living in a one or in a three bedroom apartment with one bathroom. She always found a way to do that. That might have been it. Mm. I don't know, though. I have a big family and we have a lot of Christmas and yeah. lots of Christmases. So fill in the blank. Ten years ago, I had no idea this would be so hard. Ten years ago, I didn't know that the transfer of knowledge from one person to another was so difficult to achieve. Like I didn't know it's more than just transferring the knowledge. You have to also find a way to transfer the experience. Mm. You also have to transfer the context around it. It's much harder than you think it is. I've spent the last 10 years, I think, trying to figure out if I say it this way, does it make more sense to you? If I write it in this way, does it make more sense to you? Because I know what I'm thinking, but it's hard to get somebody else to have the light bulb moment. So that's what I would say. It's hard to make people have the light bulb moment, but when they do, it's great. I can totally relate to that. I feel that way often. Yeah. Okay. When we're able to get on flights again, who would you like to sit next to on a 10 hour flight and why? Dead or alive, by the way. Dead or alive. Wow. Let me think about alive. Can I do two? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So alive, who would I want to sit next to on a flight? Uh, My wife, because we were supposed to go to Italy for our anniversary, but COVID shut Italy down. And we were supposed to go to Hilton Head, but Hilton Head shut down. Yeah. Like I owe this woman now. So that she better be sitting next to me. Like she better be sitting next to me. I would take a one of two people right now that I think would be really interesting to have a conversation with. John Locke, who wrote two treaties on government. Yeah. Or Thomas Jefferson. I think those would be interesting people to have a 10 hour conversation with. Now, remember, they got to fill 10 hours. So I'm thinking about people who have thought deeply and written because that's a long flight. Those are really good answers. 
Yes. Have you been to Italy? No. Oh, wow. My wife and I went there on our honeymoon when we got married. Amazing, amazing place. So I hope that sooner rather than later, you get the opportunity to take your wife. September, September. I have a gig. I already started looking at condos. Like I was like, what if we just stayed for a while? Like, Oh, it's amazing. Yes. You're going to want to do that. Okay. So I know you've traveled a lot of places. Next question. What's your favorite travel destination you've ever visited? Paris. Oh, good one. Period. I was there by myself. I got stuck there for a weekend. I walked 10 miles a day for three days in a row, calling my wife the whole time until she finally said, never call me again from Paris. I don't want to hear another word about this. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful place. All right. Almost done. Last three questions. Biggest pet peeve when working or talking to salespeople? Biggest pet peeve when talking to salespeople? The lack of insight. If you didn't even look at me on LinkedIn, like if you don't know who I am, like you didn't look, you could have done that. If you don't know anything about my business, like you could have done that. You could have done something. It's lazy. Yeah. So yeah, a lack of insight. Don't waste my time. Like you have to teach me something. The best salespeople that have ever called me, teach me something. HubSpot called me and said, you could be growing your newsletter list a lot faster. We want to tell you why. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong? And they're like, well, everything. And I was like, oh, okay. So you got a perspective on this. That's value. That's value. Yeah, it was. I bought from them. They're a good company. They're an amazing company. By the time this podcast drops, will Ohio State be in the playoff and can they win it? (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to tell you yes, because they can beat Northwestern. So I think they're going to make it into the playoffs. Now, my father tells me that they can't beat Notre Dame, Clemson, or Alabama. Oh, I don't believe that. I don't know. I don't don't know. But they can beat Notre Dame and Clemson, in my opinion. I think they did beat Clemson last time, but they had a, a little bit of problems with the referees. And I think that that was sort of a, like, I wouldn't make an excuse for them. But on that one, I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, yeah. this is unbelievable. I think on the right day, they can beat any one of those teams. Mm. I think they can beat Alabama. They beat Alabama before. I think they can do it. But again, it's the day of the week. Like Alabama's, they're no joke. That's the best football program in the country, probably. Pains me to say it, but I agree. (laughs) All right. Last question. It is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast after all. What's the best piece of leadership advice you've ever received? I don't know that I received it. I think I learned it over a long period of time. Uh, Your job is to raise the standard for everybody that works for you. That's Mm -hmm. your job. Your job is to raise the standard. And I'll just tell you why I came to this conclusion Everybody is basically, in my view, pure potential. They're pure potential. So this is back to you. There's no good people. There's tons of good people. Mm. They're just potential right now. And a good leader, like the leader that you remember the most fondly, Bradley, was probably like this. Bradley is uh, not talented. He's got no gifts at all. I'm going to just leave him alone because he's always going to be mediocre And I won't bother him. And then hopefully he won't bother me and ask me for any kind of help. Like that is not the leader you remember. Like that's the leader that you forget immediately because they neglected you. The leader that you remember is like this, Bradley, you're better than this. Your results should be better than this. You're not putting the effort into this. And I need to see you turn yourself inside out and become who you already are. Like then you're like, Whoa. (laughs) Okay. Hang on. I got to catch my breath after you said that, you know, that's the leader you remember the leader that sees something inside you and helps you activate that. That's the only leader you're going to remember. So when you have that coach or that teacher or whoever it was, it's because you saw something in them. So your job as a leader is to see that in them 
and then help them recognize it themselves so that they can come out of what they are and become who comes after them. That's what a leader does. One incredible advice to end the podcast with. That was fantastic. And I got Anthony, to teach too. So that was fun too. <laughs> this has been great. This has been great. I've enjoyed the conversation today. I've got three or four pages of notes and I know that our listeners are going to get just a tremendous amount of value. We're grateful and appreciative for your time. For people that want to know and get in touch with you and your work, learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? The best place is thesalesblog.com. And then if you hit forward slash newsletter, Mm -hmm. the newsletter is really where most people find out about my real work. What they say is this, when you're writing about sales, you're really writing about life. Mm -hmm. And when you're writing about life, you're really writing about sales. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. you're on to me. At some point, yeah, you'll catch on. That's it. Anthony, thank you for your time. Be well. Well, like I said, what a way to start off 2021. Thank you, Anthony, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to meet with us and just share so many pearls of wisdom, things that we can absolutely take and put into practice right away. I apologize if I sound a little nasally on today's podcast. The day of the recording for this podcast found out that I personally tested positive for COVID. And so I just wanted to reach out to let everybody know, hey, I, I know so many of you have been affected by the virus, friends, family, team members, maybe even yourself. And so if I sound a little nasally, that's why. A few of the things that he mentioned as key points is that I'm going to take away is buy or build salesmanship, hiring for character, and having an incredible training program. Just simply that the bar is really low in the insurance industry for you to truly be recognized as a trusted advisor and to be able to sell on value, not on price. And then finally, just do good work. Don't forget, make sure you sign up for Anthony's newsletter visiting thesalesblog.com forward slash newsletter. I know I'm better for it and you will be too. Hey, special thanks to the entire team at DirectClicks for their sponsorship of the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. I'm excited to announce that they've signed on again this year as a sponsor of the podcast. And it's simply just because of the growth and success of this podcast. And that's all because of all of you, our loyal listeners. So as was the case, with Anthony. We have some incredible guests coming on in 2021. We got this year off to a big start. So stay tuned. Cannot wait to share with you some of the guests that we're going to be speaking to this year. If you haven't already, be sure to check out the free marketing ROI tool that the team over at DirectClicks has developed just for insurance agency owners. I mean, simply put, why guess about the marketing in your business when you can know? Well, I guess when you can know, make sure you click the link in the episode notes or in the link that was sent to the email with this podcast. If you're not getting our emails, make sure you visit club.capital forward slash podcast, pop your email in there. And that way you can be notified for any of our future podcasts. Until next time, lead well.